I'm going to turn back to Norm Topert. That visit was a delight for me for lots of reasons. One, I got to learn that he doesn't like to say the word Catholic. Uh, and uh, two, Pastor, it's been a while since I've heard a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it's amazing because I have been racking my brain trying to think what sermon series do we do after this sermon series that is in partnership with small groups that we're launching just now. And who knew? Not only is it, does it feel right to do a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer after this series, but this morning is on prayer. Obviously, the scriptures have a lot to say about prayer. Incidentally, prayer is the second most talked about topic in the scriptures. Anybody care to guess what the number one is? You're not going to believe it, so pick something really wacko because that's probably going to be right. Faith, good guess. I don't know what number it is, but it's not one. Well, actually, excuse me, hold off on that thought uh, because it might be number one depending on how you define it. Money. The scriptures talk more about money than they do anything else. Death, prayer, um, the whole shoot and match. When you, when you, and this is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about. When you talk about faith, uh, much of the discussion in the scriptures about faith is about money. There is a significant relationship between money and faith. It was Jesus himself who said, "You cannot serve two masters." And what are the two masters that from which to choose? God and money. And so that's why the scriptures talk a lot about money, so that we don't let it become God. But that's, that's beside the point. So Norm said, it's been a while since I've heard a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And it fit beautifully in the schedule, and I've uh, been giving it some thought and attention. And so we're going to spend five weeks on Nehemiah, kicking it off where Nehemiah kicks it off, and that's focusing on prayer. And then we're going to turn our attention to looking for another four or five weeks specifically on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I pray you'll be blessed by both upcoming sermon series. And as a standing rule of thumb, I am blessed by your participation in helping to, to discern pulpit ministry. Uh, it's a joy that I don't go away to some bubble somewhere and come up with your sermons. You guys are regularly contributing to how it is that pulpit ministry unfolds. And I am blessed by that, to say the very least. Uh, Nehemiah, before we get to reading the passage here, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, needs some couching. It needs some context setting before we kick off this series. From the get-go, I think the first thing that needs to be said about the book of Nehemiah is that originally it wasn't a book. Uh, originally, it was part of another book. And you're going to know that this is obvious, and indeed it's, it's Ezra. It was, in the, it was in the process of going from the method of scrolls. Uh, if, if, you, if you ever want to see what that method is, just stop by a, a synagogue. They still use, up in the front, is where they, every, every week they open and they'll unroll the scroll. You see what I'm saying? So to go from that method to this method, um, why that kind of, things got changed. What you and I know as First and Second Samuel, that wasn't First and Second Samuel. What you and I know as First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. These are things that were made smaller, and so we sometimes because of the scrolls. It's in transferring from that to this that Ezra and Nehemiah got separated. So I only say that to say you can't understand Nehemiah 
if you haven't read Ezra. Whenever we read chapter 1, verse 1 of Nehemiah, we think it's the beginning of something. It's the middle of something. And so, that's going to play heavily in a thought I want to share with you later this morning. Keep that in the back of your mind. As I pick up chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, another thing to keep in the back of your mind is the word prayer. The whole morning this morning is focused on prayer. The title of the sermon is, Then I Prayed. The reason I pulled that out is because when we read chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, it's going it's to sound like that's when he decided to start praying. So not the case. So before I let too much out, well, why don't I go ahead and get started on chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. And as always, I'd invite those of you who are able and willing to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It came to pass, and it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me back to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that's not Jordan, that's more, more likely Euphrates because of the next phrase, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates uh, for, of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. And may God add his blessing on the reading of his word. Thanks for standing with me. Please be seated. You know, uh, I don't know how you read scriptures, but I know when I read scriptures, every time I do it, uh, I see something in there that I hadn't seen before. Is that, is that you? Has that happened with you? And I, I have preached this text before. Uh, Nehemiah is one of the books I've probably done the most work in as any and as I'm reading it here this morning the, I don't know if you caught that time I was in a row I thought I never, never noticed that before <laughs> so please as you, as, you read the, as you read the Bible don't feel badly whenever you read it again and you think oh gee I didn't catch that before I have a hunch that that's the spirit taking over right and uh, so every time that's why it's a living book it's not the same every time you read it. The Spirit has something more for you every time He has you reading it. And it never becomes too familiar. Pray that it never becomes too familiar that the next time you read it, you don't learn something 
learn something new from it. But here's what I felt the Lord laying on my heart this week as I pulled some thoughts together. The word pray, in different forms, pray, prayer, prayed, by my count, is mentioned eight times in the book of Nehemiah. Most of them right here at the beginning, and a bunch in chapter one. He spent the whole chapter one praying. That's why, that's why you don't read in, just in this verse, and he finally gets around to start praying. He's been praying the whole way through chapter 1. And in fact, there's a bunch of other times in the book of Nehemiah that prayer is mentioned. And aside from that, I counted another eight times by reading through the book of Nehemiah. They didn't use the word prayer, they just started praying. One of Nehemiah's favorite phrases is, Remember me, oh my God. For, and then you fill in the blank. Different things would happen, and then he'd ask God to remember him for doing this and for doing that. And if you count all those times together, there's 16 times that the word prayer is mentioned or the utterance of prayer is performed without the word prayer being there. 16 times. The book's only 13 chapters. And so on an average of more than once a chapter, they're talking about or doing prayer. One of these days, we're going to get it that while prayer is the second most popular topic in the Bible, that the Bible's concern, the Bible's agenda, the Bible's emphasis is prayer. Now, we, have, we all have different definitions of prayer. We all have different life experiences with prayer. Some of us, it's pretty dry and arid. Some of us, we don't take a step without having fervent prayer. And most of us are somewhere, somewhere in between there. And then you think, well, how in the world can we have yet another message on prayer and have something said that I either don't know or do already in my life? And I wondered if maybe a thought that comes to mind about how I read this passage on prayer would be helpful to us. Um, for those of us, who are maybe beginning the process of prayer, beginning the discipline of prayer, beginning the practice of prayer. And if you're anything like me, anyway, uh, I, I remember when that was new, when prayer was new for me. Um, there are some tools that the scriptures use. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, right? And so you, we have what we know as the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to be focusing on. There's all kinds of tools. I, I remember when I was a teenager and I was in church. My dad was the pastor of two. He had a two-point charge. If you remember my story, I was raised in western Pennsylvania. If you all think you're hicks, you don't hold a candle to where I come from. <laughs> the, uh, one of the church, well, both of the churches were out of the old Evangelical United Brethren tradition. You, you're probably familiar with that. That's the group that formed, merged with the Methodists to form the United Methodists. I was Methodist before you guys were United Brethren in your way. And they didn't make it through the transition process. They went independent. And so on Sunday mornings, when Dad finished preaching here, they were having Sunday school there. And then he'd drive from here to there, and then we'd have Sunday school. Got it? So every Sunday, he would have to do something like this. As the last song was being sung, he would pick someone out to do prayer. 
And then when everybody had their head bowed and their eyes closed, he could do the preacher thing and sneak out without anybody wanting to pull him aside and talk with him about something, and then be out the back door before the person said amen from the prayer. Kind of clever, I thought. One Sunday, and you know, I don't, I don't know how this happens. I guess faith means you're not supposed to know how it happens. But as sure, and I was sitting right about here, right in, right in this row here, as sure as I'm standing here talking to you now, in fact, more sure than me standing here talking to you now, I heard clearly said to me, be ready, your dad's going to pick you to pray at the end of the service this morning. I did what any self-respecting teenager would have done. I, I dismissed it as foolhardy because, what does that mean? I thought I was just conjuring stuff up in my head. Well, sure as shooting. Uh, Rick, how about you have a word of prayer as, uh, as I depart? And then, uh, well, I want, well, then I just want, I want all shaky because I'm a kid, and for some odd reason, Dad felt led. I never did have the courage to ask him why. He said, Rick, will you, will you pray? And as he was walking out the back aisle, I cleared my throat, tried to pull my thoughts together, and I said the most stupid prayer. You <laughs> I don't, I was so nervous, and my voice was shaking, and I didn't know what to say next, and I ended up praying for all the pastors that God would save them. (laughs) So why do I share that with you this morning? Nobody gets a pass from Pastor Rick on, sorry, pastor, I can't pray in public. I don't do it so well. Ha! <laughs> you got nothing on me. And, and, and don't rest assured, nobody, oh, oh I just, the thought just crossed my mind. You're all shaking because I'm going to pick you to close the service in prayer this morning. No, that's not, that's not where I'm going with this. All I'm saying is, hey, God's not an idiot, right? And they call it born again for a reason. You know, the scriptures say you must be, okay, because God, being a clever God, some might say he's the smartest one there is, okay, he knows that when you first start your journey with Jesus, you're born again, which means, are you a baby or are you grown up? You're a baby, and we all know that babies say silly things whenever they're praying. This babe sure did. And guess what? God still not just loves me but he met me there. He met me in that prayer. And he said, okay, Rick, let's talk. You, you got some work to do. <laughs> got some work. And, 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 and so we practiced praying. Oh, come on. Everybody in this room knows that if you want to play the piano, you got to what? Everybody in this room knows that if you want to be an accountant, you've got to... Do math. You got to practice, and on and on. You want to sing, and anything you want to do, you got to practice. Okay. Of course, in a spirit-led way, when it comes to prayer, you practice. So, if you're just starting to pray, there's one model out there that I think is really good. It's the Acts model. Kind of neat that it says the same thing as the book in the New Testament, which was the beginning of the church. They were all learning to pray then. They were all saying stupid stuff in prayer then. 
And the book of Acts tells the story of newborn church. It's also an excellent mnemonic device for learning how to pray. And what do I mean by that? Well, the A stands for adoration. Father God, we adore you. We praise you. You are enthroned on high. The glory and the honor is yours. Prayer, let's start prayer where prayer needs to start. God the Father. And we spend time in prayer simply reflecting about the adoration I have for God. Now, some of you who have been praying all your days, thank you for patiently sitting through this because I want to talk to those of us who are just starting to learn how to pray and are concerned that we might be saying stupid stuff like Pastor Rick did when he first started learning how to pray. And then there's C, which is confession. Father God, I confess to you this day that... uh, Fill in the blank. But, oh no, I don't want, I don't want God to know that. Yeah, you're clever. <laughs> and just imagine the relationship building that happens between you and our Heavenly Father because you are able to put words to how it is you messed up. Or, or, or even if it isn't messing up, what is it I didn't do as well today that, Father God, whom I adore, I wish to be doing better tomorrow? I confess to you this day this struggle. I confess to you this day this addiction. I confess to you today this challenge. I confess to you today this shortfall. Because when we do it, it doesn't induce guilt. When we do it, it liberates us. Amen? It liberates us from guilt. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. Okay, so I've spent some time in prayer adoring God. I've spent some time in prayer confessing before God. Thanks, God. Thanks, God, for hearing my prayer. Thanks, God, for loving me anyway. Thanks, God, for the many wonderful gifts you do give me, even amidst the challenges of life, which I'm going to get to in a second. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now the whole time you're praying, you're remembering acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then it ends certainly where God asks us to do, just like I did in the pastoral prayer today. Did you catch that bit about casting our cares before God's throne? That's the supplication. God, I need this. God, can you please help me with that? God, please deliver me from this. God, please empower me for that. That's the supplication. What do you want from God? And you say, well, that, does, that sounds kind of selfish. Well, once again, God's a smart God, and He knows your heart better than you know the words you're going to say from your heart. I think He knows the difference between a self-centered supplication and a God-honoring supplication. Don't you think? And so since he's a God who knows it anyway, and since prayer is about developing a relationship between you and God, put her out there. Put her out there and see what he does with it. One of the things that my mother often said, though, was you be careful what you ask for in prayer because you're gonna, you're gonna, he's, he's going to say yes, and then you're stuck with it. Hey, this model is just one of many. For those of us who are trying to figure out how to pray better, it's one of the tools that might be helpful to you. I'm encouraged that there's lots of different models out there, and I'd be glad to hear from you what one has helped you 
as you develop your prayer life. Feel free to share that with me. Probably end up using it in the sermon in the not-too-distant future. So I am grateful that Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, is the kind of servant of the Lord who, when he was challenged in his situation in life, was able to spend an awful lot of time in prayer. Whether he used this model, some of the things you see in this model you're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. It's one of the reasons I put it up here. Some of the things you see in this model are stuff you're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. As we go back to chapter 1, we see that it begins in the middle of the Ezra-Nehemiah book. We see that it begins with the story being told about what is happening back in Judah. Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book after it, Esther, are all books that are situated back in the land of captivity. Back and forth from Judah to the land of captivity. But the context is whenever they were, held, whenever they were hauled away and their kingdom was over. And so, he hears the story about what was going on in the book of Ezra. Anybody know what was built in the book of Ezra? The what? Okay, they started to build the wall in the book of Ezra, which is important to note, it stopped. Which is part of the reason we have the book of Nehemiah. But what was the one that was completed? The temple. And the opposition was raised most heartily in the book of Ezra when they were working on the wall. In fact, thank you for putting it out there because I wasn't sure whether or not we were going to be able to unpack it, but we got to. The reason we have Nehemiah is the work was started back in Ezra. It got delayed because they were supposed to focus on the temple. And God used that opposition in such a way as to help them to stay focused on what they were supposed to build, and that's the temple. We get to the book of Nehemiah. Word gets back to captivity where there's a guy, a Jewish servant, who was served the cup to the king, his wine, and he had to take a sip before the king did because... If it's poison, I die, not him. That's the role this guy's got to play. Okay, so he's hearing their stories as they come back from, his, uh, from Judah. The temple is built. And once again, I never miss this opportunity. Lee's sitting back here, so I get a couple points from him today. If you go to Israel, you become abundantly aware of the impact of this story. The temple is built on the high point of Israel. They took, or of, of Jerusalem. They took the high point of Jerusalem. They said, Golly, it's not high enough. And they raised it. And then they put the temple on it. And it wasn't allowed to have a wall around it. And it was exposed. And when they tried to build a wall around it, the opposition stopped it. And now we pick up in the middle of the story, and Nehemiah is faced with the fact that that temple doesn't have a wall around it. By the way, did you notice? And this is what I noticed for the first time as I read this this morning. What was the excuse Nehemiah gave to the king about why he was sad? Did you notice it? Don't feel bad if you didn't. I've worked with this professionally for decades, and I just noticed it this morning. It's the place where my father's... Well, granted, maybe that was important to him. But what didn't he say? Why am I sad? God's temple has been built on the highest high point in the city... And there's no wall to protect it. Now later he said, did you notice the fortress is there? The fortress is there, so what's the king going to hear? The fortress is right by the temple. 
This part I got. This part I had for some odd reason noticed. The king is going to hear, oh, I built a fortress next to that temple, and I didn't build a defensive wall. I've exposed my soldiers. Hey, Nehemiah, what do you need? Did you, get, did you get that? Now, maybe we don't often catch that because we're 2,000 plus years removed, but Nehemiah was being as shrewd as a serpent in his conversation with the king. And he was as shrewd as a servant, or serpent because he knew how to pray. Whenever he heard this stuff, verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he keeps on going. Verse 6, let your ear not be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, your servant which I am praying before. Prayer, prayer, prayer the whole way through there. Part of me goes, boy, he must have really wanted God to know what he wanted. No. God already knew what he wanted. But I know what Nehemiah might not have known. We don't just pray so that God knows what we want. I just said that's okay to do, so I'm not knocking that. We pray so we know what God wants. Did you know you could know what God wants? Now, I know, I know one really good way to know what God wants is to spend an awful lot of time in and close to this book. Amen? Because he said it right there in an eternal kind of way. Here's what I want. I've already made a big point from behind this pulpit about saying God is not willing that any... Okay, so we know what God wants because it's right there. Do with that what you want to do. He doesn't want anybody to perish. So how are you going to spend your life? Piddling around with whatever comes to mind to piddle around or spending your life doing what God wants. He doesn't want anybody to perish. So we get to spend our life with that. So the Bible itself lets us know what it is God wants. Nehemiah and a host of others in the biblical text model for us the value of praying to God so that we can know what God wants. Father God, lay your will on my heart. I know that you don't want anybody to perish. How can I spend my life whether you call me to be a piano player, whether you call me to be a medicine maker, whether you call me to be a trip organizer, whether you, whatever, you fill in the blank. How do you want me to spend my life in such a way as to accomplish what you want in my life? We pray for lots of reasons, but we pray so that we know what God wants. And what I love about how Nehemiah handles this is he spent the entirety of chapter 1 praying and then praying and then praying and then praying. And then when it came time for the king, now it's, now it's showtime. He's out of his prayer closet and he's at work sipping wine. Gotta love that job, eh? And he's, and he's at work. And, and, the king, and the king notices that he's not 100% present. Got it? Tracking with me? So much so that the king has to ask, what's up? Now, you and I probably aren't going to relate to that because we're thinking, what a cute story. The king noticed he was having a bad day. But here's how that goes. 
you came into my presence like that? Somebody take him out of here and kill him. That's how it went down. That's what the standard operating procedure was. How dare you impose on my presence anything other than your finest, your grandest, your smiliest. I had to distract myself from my royal duties to ask you, why the sad face? Somebody take him out of here and kill him. I never want to see him again. That's how the story was supposed to go. And none of us, by the way, are allowed to be surprised that that's how the story went. One of the reasons why we have it here before us this morning is Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed. He might have been prayed up and prayed up and prayed up, which is always a good idea for all of us. But when it's showtime, you might think you're all prayed up, but I still pray that your first response is to pray. Because here's why, okay? He might have spent the entire time of chapter 1 praying to know what God wants, okay? But granted, it's a really emotional issue. Even if there was some merit to the whole father's tombs thing, there was an awful lot of merit to the fact that the wall tried to get built before and it wasn't built. We failed. Here we go. We got to try again. Maybe in my prayer, I just want what I want. And I might not have it right. So what am I going to do? Run from prayer or pray again? Easy test. B. Right? Pray again. Especially when it's showtime. And the king asks, what's wrong? Nehemiah knew. Nehemiah knew the next phrase out of his mouth could have been, hey, Nehemiah, what's wrong? You know what? Somebody kill him. It could have been just that simple. I don't know about you, but when I find myself in that situation, I'm going to be quick to pray. And not just to pray so that I can know what God wants, but quick to pray, well, we should pray more, not because we should. We pray more because we want to know and do what God wants. Now that I know what God wants, I've got to pray to do what God wants. That's a whole other layer. As your pastor, I promise you, you see how I put that word should in quotes? It will never be my intention. I might mess up once in a while, but know that if I do, you can call me on it. I will never tell you you should be praying more. It doesn't do anybody any good. But as your pastor, I want you to want to know God better. Amen? And then the way you know God better, certainly to read his word, but just as certainly to pray fervently, passionately, constantly. The scriptures say pray without, you're way ahead of me. You get this. Pray without ceasing so that you can always know what it is God wants for you. That's the emphasis that I want to have with you. I'm not here to induce guilt on anybody. 
The word should is associated with guilt. You, it's not that you should or shouldn't be praying more. I would be happy to know that you want to know what God wants more. And then as you get to know what God wants more, that you will pray just as fervently to have the strength and the courage to do what you know God wants. Amen? Why don't you stand with me as we pray? I want what you want, Father. And I pray that those times when I fall short of what I know you want, that you'd continue to meet me there. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all those times in my life when you've had to do that. And I can't help but get excited about the many wonderful ways that the stories of that kind of thing are just going to multiply across this room here this morning. Help us to have the eager desire to press into your heart through prayer so that we can, by the Holy Spirit's power, move mountains, rebuild walls, and establish your kingdom on this earth for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.